Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 as we talk about revealing the mystery of Christ. Now here Paul is revealing the mystery of Christ for the church at Ephesus. And in the text this morning, we're going to see the mystery of Christ revealed in four ways. Now this morning, we're only going to look at the first two, saving the last two for next Sunday morning. But this morning, we are going to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, as Paul begins to reveal to the church at Ephesus and us here this morning, what is the mystery of Christ? And so listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then notice, he interrupts his thought in verse 7. He says, assuming that you have heard of... I mean, sorry, in verse 2 he interrupts himself. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men, excuse me, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he who has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Can't can't separate what we're doing here from what I know that my brother in Christ is suffering and enduring on the other side of the world. almost with guilt that I stand to preach Christ in such comfort, with such confidence, without any fear or worry, or without any, any thought of persecution in my mind. And can't stop thinking about the honor that Paul says it is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so honored that my friend, in his prayer request to us, is that he simply remained faithful to what God has called him to do, not worried that he may be in prison, not worried that he may die, but only concerned for his faithfulness to the preaching of the gospel and his family that's likely to be left behind. And so I just want to begin by asking, is it worth suffering for the sake of the gospel to you and I? Is, is it really worth us dying for the sake of the gospel, suffering for the sake of the gospel? 
Because oftentimes I think we struggle when we're just inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Right? And that's not me throwing stones at you. That's God convicting me personally. I I struggle when I'm just inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel, much less when I'm persecuted heavily for the sake of the gospel, to which I personally have not endured to the level that they're enduring And so as we begin this morning, as we see the mystery of Christ unfolded and revealed before our very eyes in this text, I want to remind us that this mystery is worth suffering for. Amen? The mystery of the gospel is worth dying for. The mystery of the gospel is all that really matters in this life. Amen? And so as we see the mystery unfolded, let's look at the mystery of Christ and let's be in awe of God's grace to us this morning. So in the text again, we're going to see the mystery of Christ revealed in four ways. The first two of which we're going to look at this morning. Number one, the mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's timing. The mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's timing. Notice what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, for this reason i paul a prisoner for christ jesus on behalf of you gentiles now that for this reason is pointing us back to what paul had just said at the end of chapter two and if you'll remember as Corey preached that text paul was praising god and thanking god because god had brought two radically different people groups together into one body body united together through the gospel message of jesus christ listen you think that we have hostility in this country you think that there are racial divisions in this country to which there are amen but i'm telling you what we experience in this country pales in comparison to what was experienced within the differences between the jews and the gentiles i mean two groups that hated one another and two groups that didn't have to deal with politically correctness they hated each other and they made their hate for one another known They they, they did not like one another. And God in his sovereignty, and even in his sense of humor, I believe, presented a gospel that brings all nations together and unifies us in the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are all members of one body, amen? And it doesn't matter what our skin color is. It doesn't matter where we came from. We're united together in the body of Christ. And Paul has been praising God for that, unveiling that mystery to the Gentiles and to the Jews to which he's writing to. And so in verse 3, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, Paul says, first of all, I'm in prison for my faith. And what Paul's going to finally get to in verse 14, after he's done interrupting himself, Paul is going to pray on behalf of the Jews and the Gentiles that make up the church in Ephesus. He's going to pray for their unity. But before he gets there, Paul, as he is prone to do, Paul interrupts his own train of thought and begins to chase down this rabbit as he is trying to answer the question of why, Paul, are you in prison for the sake of us Gentiles? And so in verse 2, Paul begins to answer the question of why he has been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. So 
What we see is because of the unity that we and they have in Christ, Paul was about to express his prayer for them, but he first of all answers in verses 2 through 13, why, Paul, are you in prison for the sake of the gospel? Notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I have written briefly. Paul says that the stewardship of God had been given to him for the sake of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says this, God has revealed something to me that you Gentiles need to hear. And Paul has given this to me as an act of grace, as a gift, and he's given it to me so that I could steward it well, so that I could pass it out well, so that all might know what Paul says is the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel. Now, this term mystery is going to further be explained in verse 6, but it's important to remember and to understand what Paul means by the term mystery because he uses it all throughout this text. And really, he uses it lots of times throughout the book of Ephesians as a whole. So listen here. The term mystery, anytime you see it in the New Testament, especially from the mouth of Paul, this is what that term mystery means. It means that this thing that Paul is about to address used to be hidden, but is now going to be revealed. Right? So the term mystery does not mean in the New Testament that we can't understand it, that it's hidden from us. What Paul means by the term is that it used to be hidden, but Paul is about to unveil it. Paul's about to let the cat out of the bag. Hey, anybody ever remember that, that show, that magic show, where, where this guy came out, he was a magician, and he had on a black mask so that you couldn't tell who he was. He had his voice described, uh, I mean disguised, and his whole goal was he wanted to show you how the magic trick was done. And so he'd cut somebody in half, and then he'd reveal how that was done. And he'd show, ha-ha, we got you. These aren't real legs. This person's really flexible. They're tucked away in here. These are fake legs over here. And he would reveal the mystery of how the magic trick was done. Well, that's exactly, by the way, I apologize if I just blew that magic trick for you. If you didn't know that, and you were thinking, oh my goodness, that is ruined for me forever, I apologize. But what Paul is doing is he's doing just that. He is openly saying, here is what was once hidden that I want to make known to you. And so that's what Paul is doing when he uses the term mystery. Now Paul says this mystery that he's speaking about concerns the gift of salvation through Christ. Something that Paul says in verse 3, I've already briefly written to you about it. That's chapters 1 and chapters 2. And Paul says as you read this, notice in verse 4, you're going to perceive that I have been given insight into the mystery of Christ. But it's important that we notice where this insight came from back in verse 3. It came from God's revelation to Paul. This was not Paul's wisdom. Paul didn't just figure this out. No, God revealed the mystery to Paul so that Paul could steward it or pass it on to others. And so what Paul is saying is that this is a gift. As a matter of fact, Paul, notice, repeats the word grace and gift and given several times throughout this text so that we will realize this is something that came from God, not Paul. This was God's grace to Paul and God's grace, listen carefully, God's grace to all those who would hear Paul preach or read Paul's letter. In other words, this is God's grace to us. 
God is revealing the mystery of salvation to us this morning. God wants to make sure that we understand what his plan was from the beginning of time. And so Paul begins to explain in verse 5 that although God had hidden this from the very beginning, God has now made it revealed through the New Testament. Now, what I want you to understand is that God has given glimpses of this, notice in verse 5, to the Old Testament prophets. Right? He hasn't made it fully known, but he's given us glimpses of the gospel all throughout the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I want you to kind of follow along with me, not in your scripture, but in your mind, as we look at some of those glimpses. Remember what God said in Genesis 3.15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head... And you shall bruise his heel. That was really cool. The symbol went as I stomped my foot. That was not planned, but I like it. Listen, this past week, we well, actually about a month ago, we were at Tractor Supply, and Daddy had a very, very weak moment in Tractor Supply. And we came home with chickens, baby chicks. I mean a weak, weak moment in tractor supply that I have still not stopped regretting, especially as I'm trying to figure out how to keep these chickens safe and what it's going to cost me to build some kind of a contraption that's going to keep these chickens safe so that we can get free eggs. Yeah, right? So the other day, Carrie and I are in the kitchen, and the kids are outside. I literally look at Carrie, and I say to her, finally... We have a moment where we can discuss something that we were trying to talk about without interruption. I love Noah and Haley, but it's not often that we get moments of interrupted conversation. As soon as those words came out of my mouth, I hear screaming like the world is ending coming from outside. I look at Carrie and I said, never mind, as we go running out the back door. Noah meets us at the back door and says, Daddy, snake. Yeah, so... I take off running the other way. I'm kidding. So, so against my better judgment, I run outside in flip-flops to engage who knows what kind of snake this might be. As we make our way outside, Haley is screaming, trying to round up chickens, you know, which is an easy thing to do, while a snake is coming to the chickens, not worrying that daddy, big old strong daddy, is running outside. He continues to engage me, coming at me, not running from me. That's not my kind of snake, right? All the while, I'm screaming at Noah like Haley is screaming. Same same pitch, same sound coming out, both me and my daughter, promise you. Going... Noah, get the shovel! Hurry! Right? Right? And finally, Noah retrieves the shovel that, by the way, was the furthest shovel away. He passed one shovel to get to a different shovel. You didn't remember the flat shovel was right beside the building. He went beyond that to get the spade. Right? And as he gives me the shovel, I take aim at the snake's what? Head. Because if you want to kill a snake, you chop off or stomp its head. And that's exactly what Scripture gives us a glimpse of in Genesis 3.15. Notice, the glimpse in Genesis 3.15 is this. One day the woman is going to have a descendant who is going to stomp the head of Satan. I, I better quit stomping. Things are literally falling apart. One day the woman's descendant is going to defeat and kill Satan once and for all. But that descendant will be wounded, struck in the hill by Satan. 
Again, it's not a full picture of the gospel, right? We don't get all the details. What we get, though, is we get a glimpse of things to come. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham gives us another glimpse. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and do what with him? Offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham, trusting God, walks up the mountain to the place where they're going to offer the sacrifice He's about to offer his son, his only son, his son of promise, Isaac, on the altar. And God stops him and God provides a ram. And the place is known as God will provide. Again, we don't get all the details, but what we get is a glimpse of things to come. What's the glimpse? One day, God is going to provide a son of promise who will take our place on the altar and die for our sins. That's awesome, amen? Abraham and Isaac getting about Abraham and Isaac. It's about Jesus who is to come. Again, a glimpse of things to come. But notice, the glimpse is blurry. The glimpse isn't clearly focused. We don't get all the details. We only get a glimpse. Well, that's what Paul says. It's what he means in verse 5. He says, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Now, God gave enough of it so that they could understand how they could put their faith in the one that was to come. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus the Christ. They knew it was going to be the promised Messiah, right? They got a glimpse of it, but not the full picture. Well, there were glimpses all throughout Christ, or all throughout the Old Testament concerning Christ. But God chose not to fully unveil them until the death and resurrection of Christ. And notice, he unveiled them through the holy apostles and the prophets. As a matter of fact, we see this confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews says this, God at one time spoke to us through the prophets of old, but in these last days he has revealed himself to us through his Son who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. God gives us a clear picture of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Used to be a glimpse. Now it's the full picture. Peter adds to that and says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. I love this passage in Peter because here's what Peter says. The Old Testament saints and prophets, they prayed. They asked God for a clearer picture. They asked God for all the details. And what God revealed to them is that what they were doing wasn't for them. It was for us. It was so that one day we could do exactly what we're doing this morning. We could go back to the Old Testament and we could see that this was God's plan all along. 
And that what used to be hidden has now been revealed, now has it been made clear. And we see that the whole Bible from Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation points to none other than Jesus Christ. Amen? And you say, why didn't God make it known to them? Because the mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's timing. The mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's timing. God revealed in his perfect timing exactly what every one of us from the beginning of time till today needed to know about Jesus. And so the mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's timing. And then secondly, the mystery of Christ was revealed according to God's revelation. Again in verse 5, Paul explained that the mystery of Christ had not been revealed to other generations as it had now been revealed in God's timing to the holy apostles. Well, Paul was one of those apostles. And so he's able to define for us the mystery of Christ according to God's revelation to him. Again, look back in verse 3. This does not come from Paul's wisdom. This is God's revelation to Paul for us. This is God speaking through Paul as if Paul was nothing more than a microphone so that God could declare to us what the mystery was. And so what is the mystery? Well, look with me now in verse 6 where Paul defines the mystery. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And as we look at Paul's use of the term mystery throughout all of the book of Ephesians and really throughout the New Testament as a whole, what we find is that anytime uses the word Paul, I mean, anytime Paul uses the word mystery, he is referring in some way, shape or form to an aspect of the gospel. And listen, that's going to help us understand what Paul means in verse 6. So quickly with me, if you don't mind, take your Bibles and look with me. We're staying in the book of Ephesians. Just look back in chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to pick up in verse 7 to get the context, but chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So in chapter 1 verse 9, Paul uses the term mystery to speak of God's redemption plan in salvation and how God did all of this based upon his own grace so that we could be redeemed according to God's perfect plan and will. And so the term mystery speaks to an aspect of salvation, specifically redemption and reconciliation through Christ according to the will of God in chapter 1. Well, then we have it here in chapter 3, but jump with me now to chapter 5, verse 32. Chapter 5, verse 32, the context here takes us all the way back to verse 22 where Paul speaks to wives and husbands and he speaks to the relationship that wives and husbands are to have and he helps us understand that the husband-wife relationship has a whole lot more to do with Christ and the church than it does just the husband and the wife. So again, just for context, jump with me into verse 22. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Don't worry, we're going to dive into the details of this text when we get there through our sermon series. But just listen to what it says about Christ and the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, that's not what a husband can do for a wife. That's what Christ did for the church. Amen? And then he continues on in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By the way, what verse is that? Where does that come from? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's right, Genesis 2, 24. Right? The first time God mentions marriage in the Bible, when he creates Adam and Eve and ordains them to be married in Genesis 2, 24. Notice what Paul says then in verse 32. This is awesome. He says this, what's the word? Mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, we'll get there. It's one of my favorite passages. But Paul says this is a mystery Marriage doesn't have to do with husband and wife relationships alone. It has way more to do with the relationship that will one day exist between Christ and his bride, the church. Again, the term mystery gives us a different aspect of the gospel, of salvation, that we as believers become the bride of Christ. And then jump with me now into chapter 6 and we'll be done. Not with a sermon, just with this little part of it. Notice in verse 19, after speaking about the whole armor of God, Paul says to the church in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications or prayers for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So what we see is that when Paul uses that term mystery, he is using it to unveil some aspect of the gospel. The reality is the gospel is huge and it is complex. And so there's more than one aspect or one thought process when we think about the gospel, when we think about salvation. So the term mystery in this context, notice, is used to highlight the unity that has now come between the Gentiles and the Jews who are now brought together, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise. What Paul's highlighting here is that we are now united together as the body of Christ through the gospel. And notice that our unity only comes through the gospel. That's important. Listen, church family, listen. If we try to find unity in anything other than the gospel, that other thing will eventually let us down and it will allow division to creep into the church. We've experienced it, amen? If you've been a believer longer than a day and you've ever been a part of a church, you know this to be true. Churches divide and get frustrated with one another all the time over piddly little stuff, 
Right? Why? Because they begin to focus on unity in something other than the gospel. We will not always agree with one another on every detail. Right? We definitely won't agree with things that take place outside of the church, but we're not going to agree with everything that takes place inside the church. Right? What color should the walls be? What color should the carpet be? Should we do this? Should we do that? Right? We're never going to fully agree. So what do we agree upon? We agree upon the gospel. And everything else we don't worry about as much. Amen? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the devil wants to divide our church. He's always and will always want to divide our church and every other church that exists for the glory of God. And when the devil divides our church, our church stops being an effective witness. The glory of God is hidden and the devil is pleased. So the devil will try to divide us over every little thing that will work. And oftentimes it doesn't take much. Amen? Doesn't take much. Listen, in our house, we, we, can, we can be divided in trying to decide where to eat dessert at. Seriously, it's that easy. Amen? It's that easy. And if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of the fact that we're going to get to eat dessert. Woo! It's great. And we get frustrated because we might not get to eat it at the place we wanted to eat it at. That's hilarious, isn't it? But the same thing happens in the church over and over and over again. And sometimes we find ourselves frustrated and we can't even remember really why we're frustrated, but we're just frustrated. And the reason we're ultimately frustrated is because we stopped focusing on that which unifies us, which is the gospel. Amen. So let's make sure that we stay unified in the gospel. We are united together as the body of Christ only through the gospel. So what then is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of salvation through Christ. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving death and judgment. As Paul put it in verse one, in chapter, chapter 1 and 2, we were the enemies of God... We were children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy, sent his very own son to die in our place, paying the death that we owed so that through faith we could have forgiveness and eternal life. And this was not God's afterthought, remember. This was predestined before the foundations of the world that God would choose us, that God would save us. How? By God presenting this truth to us, revealing the mystery to us, so that we in turn could believe it and accept it. Again, we don't comprehend this based upon our own will and our own wisdom. God has to reveal the mystery to us. Amen? God's got to make it known. God's got to reveal it. And is what we're going to see is that God makes it known through the preaching of his word and God makes it known through the New Testament church today. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 10 when we get to it next week. But what I want you to understand is that once God makes it known, then God enables us to do that which we have to do, which is believe it, repent of our sins, and follow Jesus. We believe, first and foremost, in who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. That he did die on the cross to pay for our sins. But he didn't stay dead, amen? 
He rose from the dead, defeating death and the grave. We believe in who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But we also have to repent. We have to repent of our personal sin. I got to stop looking at anybody else and look at me and realize and confess that I am a sinner. I have fallen short of God's glory. I have turned my back on God. I am responsible for my sin. I deserve death, judgment, and hell. But because I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and because Jesus has revealed that truth to me, I, who am guilty and deserve death, I can put my faith and trust in Jesus. What does that look like? It looks like following Jesus in my life. It's not about just believing. The devil and the demons believe. It's about me putting action to my faith, action to my belief. It's about me following Jesus in my life. Will I be perfect? (laughs) Far, far from it. Amen? Far, far from it. But I will faithfully follow Jesus. Not because I'm faithful, but because he is faithful. Amen? And so that is the gospel that Paul is declaring. And Paul's point is that this sounds too good to be true. Too easy, if you will, for why would God love us that much? Well, let me tell you, it's a mystery that we could not fully comprehend if it hadn't have been for God making it known to us through the apostles, through the word, and through his spirit speaking to our heart. And so that brings me to the question, has God made it known to you? Has God revealed this truth to you? Has he made it known? Has he made it come alive? And is he, if he has, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Are you following Jesus in your life? I'm not asking if you believe alone. I'm not asking if you've repented alone. I'm asking, have you believed? Have you repented? And are you following Jesus? Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to remind you that God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. Therefore, he sent his son to die on the cross for you, to pay for your sins so that you could have eternal life and forgiveness, so that you could follow him. And this is a mystery that you cannot comprehend apart from God revealing it to you. And so if God has revealed it to you, then let me ask you again, have you put your trust and faith in Jesus? Have you? And if you haven't, will you? With everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed, I want to remind you that God loves you. And that if you feel God speaking to you, that is God calling you. Because he loves you and because he wants a relationship with you. So if God is speaking, do not ignore God's call to you. Say yes to him. In just a few moments, we're going to sing our hymn of invitation. And as we do, you're going to be able to respond. And that'll be your opportunity to simply come forward and and say to me, Will, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
Maybe you've got more questions and you want to come and you want to say, Will, I want to talk to you. Maybe you want to wait till the service is over and come and find me. But if God is speaking to you, do not leave here today until you have said yes to him. Secondly, let me remind you, church family, that we only have unity through the gospel. Therefore, let's make sure that we do not allow anything other than the gospel to divide us and tear down our unity. We will not always agree. We do not have to agree on anything other than the gospel. So let's guard our unity so that we as a church family can bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can shine the light of the gospel into the community that desperately needs to know it. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you now. We ask, Lord Jesus, for your will to be done during this time of invitation. You lead, we'll follow. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.